This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with music industry mogul, entrepreneur, automatic car wash, pioneer, and philanthropist Andy Chud. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance business coach, where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. Thanks for spending some time with me today. In this episode, my dear friend and mentor, a a, a literal hero to thousands of families in Utah, Andy Chud, son of a record label owner, manager of superstar pop star Fats Domino, and philanthropist ties to the Carl Malone Foundation, Thoreau Bailey Basketball Camps, Make-A-Wish Foundation, Firemen and Friends for Kids, and the incredible Mascot Bowl, shares his extraordinary life involved in the rock and roll music revolution surrounded by Elvis, Little Richard, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, in New York, Las Vegas, and the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, giving us the inside glimpse into how each of us can use our wisdom, experience, and influential platform to make everybody around us better through service before self in business and in life. This is one of the most unique individuals you will ever have the privilege of meeting and listening to if you're a music fan at all. Andy Chud. Hi, it's Dan here with Power Players with Dan Clark, and I am so excited about this episode. My question is based in an extraordinary experience I had at our world-famous Primary Children's Hospital here at the University of Utah campus in the mountains east of Salt Lake City, Utah. My wife and I volunteer there two days a week, on Sundays and on Tuesdays, and our job is simply to just visit the, the, the rooms with permission and if the, 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 the mom needs a hug, if they need a warm blanket, if we can give them a pillowcase with, a, with an awesome positive statement embroidered on it in a separate cause that we have created and participate in, it doesn't matter. The idea, <clears throat> excuse me, of being there and interacting with these families who have sick children, some of whom die it just it grounds us and it puts us in that spiritual perspective that all of us need to remain, reminding us that, in fact, regardless of your religious tradition, we are all spiritual beings having a physical experience on this earth. And the goal is to make a difference before we take our last breath, so we leave a legacy of, of, of leadership and love behind. I know you know that, but one day we interacted with a family. They had come down from out of state with Hippolaz, I won't tell you what or where, but they came down on a Mother's Day to visit their sick grandchild and son who had cystic fibrosis. And as we visited, I got to start over. That takes too long to tell the story. Never mind. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Sorry. I was going. I know. What the hell does that have to do with going? The, I know. Yeah. Just a second. Here. No, we don't need those anymore. Did we you, have did chewies. You, did you, yeah, we have, we have push cubes. Uh, did you know that in the 60s, the word that was said more than any other word? Was get high. No, ear. Ear. That's so bad. No, actually, it's pretty good. I've used it a lot. I went to the Dan Clark School. Here we go. Story Here we guy. go. Here we go. Here we go. Hi, it's Dan with Power Players, and today's guest is unbelievable because he will remind us that in a patriotic mindset, America without soldiers is like God without angels. And regardless of regardless of your religious tradition. We have to understand, and I'm begging you to buy into my belief system, that when we pray to God, he always answers our prayers through other people. And so when you have extraordinary things happen, or you have ordinary miracles that seem to occur, most of the time, in fact, I would suggest that all of the time, there's at least one human being 
behind making that miracle turn into a reality. So my guest today is someone who is the poster child that validates there are angels among us. People looking out for the underserved. People with their heads on a swivel like a linebacker on a football field looking for ways to turn their success into significance so that they can lift up the lonely, they can comfort the alone, they can help feed the homeless, clothe the homeless, shelter the homeless, and do whatever is required to just lift up everyone in our community so that when they leave, everybody says, I like me best when I'm with you, I want to see you again. Obviously, I'm talking about my dear friend, my mentor, a hero to thousands in the Intermountain West, a gentleman by the name of Andy Chud. And because you're on camera and you're smiling, you're blowing off this introduction like, come on, Clark, calm down. <laughs> but someone needs to delve into the humility of this angel on earth. And it's my pleasure to expose his generosity in the best way I can today through stories not just a human being who's a serial entrepreneur who's been very successful as a businessman and as a business consultant helping others build their business. Surprise, surprise. But I want to take you all the way back to his beginning because he grew up in a very interesting home, had a very interesting dad. And in that process of being part of the music industry with historic legends that you will know regardless of your age or interest, and the questions will, will, will be surrounding what you learned from individuals who used their platform for good, who used their, their experience and their amazing talent and network of people to make the world a better place, a happier place, to allow us to escape our pain and suffering for a 90-minute concert, to put a smile on our face. All of those things have made you who you are, Andy Judd. And it's a long introduction, but if you think about what I've said, I challenge all of us to listen to his heart as he connects it with his head, and not just listen to his experiences, but plug in, play yourself into his experiences with the challenge, could you do that? And I would say, yes, we can, if we just think like Andy Chud and we take action like Andy Chud to reach out to his circle of friends and network to help him do what he wants to do to make the world a better place. Andy Chud, my introduction keeps going on. I got to stop and ask you, how are you? I'm really good. I just, uh, I need to take you on the road with me as an opening act. I, uh, then I wouldn't have to do anything. I just walk up, say, hi, thank you very much, and walk off. So funny. So Andy and I have known of each other for many, many years. And I will go to a charity event. I'll buy a table. We'll try to participate as social entrepreneurs and and support these noble causes. And every single time we've ever attended any significant gala, any significant fundraiser, there's Andy Chud and his beautiful wife, Peggy. And that proves true that we actually do become the average of the five people we associate with the most, which means we must be willing to pay any price and travel any distance to associate with extraordinary human beings. But in order to attract an extraordinary human being, you must first be an extraordinary human being. So take us back. Uh, we got great seats. We're on the fifth row of a country act, little big town who came into town, and I'm excited, and all of a sudden, Andy's on the front row, and he stands up to stretch, and we get eye contact. And the other night, he invited me as his guest to the Bob Dylan concert, and obviously, we're on the fifth row. <laughs> he is the most connected person on the planet in Nashville, in Salt Lake City, in Los Angeles, in New York, most likely in Bangladesh. Actually, I know he's connected in, in, in Thailand, and we'll get to that hopefully. So Andy, take us all the way back. Growing up in a, in a music household with a dad who was a music icon, he actually had his own record label. Take us all the way back to your earliest mm -hmm. memories of growing up and what you learned in that creative environment. Well, you know, the, the, the great thing about growing up in the time I grew up in is as much magic happened in my house and in my life was all music related. I, uh, I grew up, my father started Imperial Records in 1947 in Los Angeles. He had previously had a label called Crown Records in New York that he sold. 
He went to L.A. with an idea that he was going to sell what was not really a big market, and that was called race records back in those days. So he he had uh, African-American artists, he had Latino artists, and he basically dealt with their radio stations. Uh, when I say theirs, I mean uh, basically Hispanic radio stations and, and black radio stations. But the cool part for me was I grew up around it. Music was all around me. My father would come home from the recording studio and throw a disc on the stereo or long before the stereo, just on a record player, and we would get to listen. And we got to a point where it was such a big part of my life. I cared more about music than just about anything else. And so I got to do things that other children didn't get to do. I was in the recording studio. I think it was like 1955 or 56, uh, the studio of a guy named Bunny Robine. And Bunny was looking for a specific sound, and he was a genius sound engineer. And you got to remember, this was direct-to-disc and then reel-to-reel. Uh, -reel. This is not stereo yet. And so to get an echo sound, Bunny ran a microphone into uh, a toilet bowl and a speaker on the other side of the toilet bowl, and that was the first echo chamber. <laughs> so being around that, people like that, being around genius musicians, Earl Palmer, Hal Blaine, Tommy Tedesco, people that not a lot of people know their names, but Earl Palmer is the most recorded drummer in the history of the world um, and was a friend. Ray Brown on bass. All of these people molded my tastes in music, being around them. And my brother and I, my brother Reeve and I grew up in just a magical time. Your dad owned a record company. We got to go to Disneyland the day before it opened. We got to go to red carpet events for movies where, you know, people even today just dream of them. You know, and all we cared about was did we get free candy and popcorn and could we bury ourselves? But we grew up in a magical time where my brother and I used to get shuffled off to the movie theater every Saturday. And it was two movies, two cartoons, and a newsreel. And uh, that cost 25 cents. <laughs> and then you got another 25 cents for a candy bar and a drink. I mean, and I'm going to be 72 on Saturday, <laughs> on Friday, so it's not that long ago. But I look at how magical it was. And then growing up during let that me, time. Let me interrupt right there. Sure. So you are you are Jewish. I am, and you grew up kind of a, a Jack Jew, though. It's okay. Okay, you know, once a Jew, always a Jew. Okay, and and you were in the midst of a race records focused in on African American and Latino Hispanic artists mm -hmm. dealing with their demographic and their fan base. Correct, which obviously had to teach you at the lowest, deepest, highest, most amazing, significant level, racism, that the same God who made you made me too. And that was in the, in the historical backdrop of brutal racism. And yet you were being schooled, unaware perhaps, of the significance of humanity and that the underserved is underserved regardless of race or gender or religion or ethnicity. And how cool is that? That now manifests itself in your elderly years, if you will, when you've retired and you have more time to be a philanthropist. Well, I mean, you know, the amazing thing is the way we were brought up. Um, my parents, uh, we had an African-American housekeeper that was a member of the family, was not allowed to be treated as, as anything less than a member of the family. That, ha that had a, a long-lasting effect on me. I mean, uh, and then my father started Fats Domino. And uh, if you've seen the new Elvis movie, um, a part of my life was in that movie. Yes. Um, in that when Elvis announced that he was coming back in 1969 to Las Vegas, um, he had Fats Domino who I later managed um, on the stage with him. And basically, they were addressing Elvis as the king of rock and roll. He says, you want the king of rock and roll? That's him right there, Fats Domino. 
these are things that I knew to be true and real, and now they're coming to life in front of my very eyes. That's pretty cool. In 1969, having Elvis from Memphis, who was like the blue-eyed brother, you know, he was the guy, as you look in that movie, and record producers and icons in the music industry were listening to a record, a recording of Elvis singing, and they thought he was black. He was black. Yeah. So he illuminates the significance of Fats Domino as the king of rock and roll. So think about the, the part of the movement that you were leading, that you were a major... Well, I don't know about leading, well, but I was a, a major part of it. Player I was a part of it. In, you know, the, the, in, in the bringing race relations to where we need them to be. Agreed. Agreed. I, I think that so much... I'm not a woke guy. I'm, I'm not. I'm a believer that... I have friends that are black, Mexican, uh, Asian. I mean, I don't even know what, what to call them anymore without offending somebody. And, but I have friends that are just my friends, period. I traveled for a good deal of my early 20s as the only white guy with a black band in places where there was still a good deal of issue there. The Civil Rights Amendment was passed in 1965, and in 1970, I was on the road. And I had some amazing experiences. And uh, a guy named Rick Coleman wrote a book called Fats Domino, The Lost Dawn of Rock and Roll, uh, Blue Monday, The Lost Dawn of Rock and Roll. And he, and he puts a number of things about myself and my dad and Fats and bringing things into line. But, you know... Getting back to what your original question is, like it was a magical time. We were around Ricky Nelson at the time. Ricky was on a hit TV show called The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. I remember. And my dad and Ozzy got on the, and in those days, TV shows were not owned by the, the network, they were owned by the sponsors. So oh. my dad and Ozzy Nelson, who was a graduate lawyer from Rutgers, but never practiced, got on a plane, went to... Eastman Kodak and sat down with them and said, we need to cut the last three minutes of the, of the show and put on uh, one of Ricky's songs with girls screaming in the background. I mean, that was the forerunner of MTV because uh, they, they gave him a test market of two and it went for 12. So that was amazing. But once again, being around Ricky Nelson, my brother and I, you know, in in Cashbox and Billboard magazines because they were wanting to, you know, kiss my dad's rear end. And, <laughs> and you know, we were hula hoops. The company Whammo came to my dad and said, we've got a toy that we think is going to take the world by storm. Can you write a song? So he said, I can't, but I can get somebody to. We did. They put a song called Hula Hoop. Next thing you know, my brother and I are in Cashbox magazine teaching people how to hula hoop. And in our garage, I swear, there was a hundred of them. <laughs> so all my friends had them. And, and those things were the magical things. I mean, seeing guys like Frank Sinatra live, I, I, I can't convey possibly how magical that was to, to be around that much musical talent. Now, my brother Reeve, is not of the same taste. He'll tell you that the reason he saw the Beatles, the reason he saw Jimi Hendrix, the reason he saw Simon and Garfunkel is I dragged him physically to the concerts. But he was always grateful after the fact, and now he's grateful at age 71, almost, to have those memories. So those are just unbelievable times. And for me, um, Fats Domino was a genius. I mean, he was not highly educated, the sweetest man on the planet, uh, but he could he could come up with a tune. And Dave Bartholomew, who was his arranger, producer, uh, friend, band leader, sometimes he traveled with Fats on some of our, our jaunts, um, was just, uh, uh, he was a musical genius too. And he played with Lionel Hampton, he played with, uh, Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, the guy was legendary, and both Fats and and uh, uh, Dave are members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the first class. Oh wow! So, so you're talking about 
just legendary. Ricky Nelson's in the Hillbilly Hall of Fame. My dad started a, a singing postman from Florida named Slim Whitman. And uh, he did crazy Nelson Eddie old, uh, you know, Rosemary, I love you and Indian love call and stuff like that. And you were like, and my father would come up with these wild ideas of, because he yodeled. And then if you ever want to hear something funny, he ended up recapturing his masters and releasing them himself. And the best interview you'll ever see is Johnny Carson and Slim Whitman. <laughs> and so so those are things that I lived. I was around. We didn't have camera phones. We didn't have all that stuff. Backstage, when I was managing Fats uh, in 1970, late 70, early 71, um, I had booked him at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas in the lounge. And he wasn't in the main showroom, so he would do shows at 11, 1, 3, and 5, 45-minute sets. And I still have those original contracts. Oh, wow. But one night I walk in and there's a guy in a white suit and a Panama hat in front of me blocking the entrance to the dressing room. And when I went to walk past him, I realized that's Colonel Tom Parker. And you were 19? No, 20, I was 20. 20 years 20. old at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I walked in there and uh, in front of him was the king. And you know, Colonel, Colonel I, Tom Parker. Yeah. The manager, you'll see it in the Elvis movie, the manager. The crooked manager. The crooked sleazy manager. I had but, no but, idea Tom But Parker throughout that Preston. movie, you see the one thing that even Elvis agreed to, and that's the snowman's Absolutely. league. And I have my membership card part-time. Yep. But I spent about 20 minutes with him twice. And I, did, I didn't notice the accent that Tom Hanks uses in the movie anywhere near as pronounced as it was. I mean, there was something unique about it, but I didn't think of him as from the Netherlands. But, you know, I was a kid, yeah. and I was overwhelmed. You know, my heart's pounding. Um, and he asked me what I was doing there. I said, well, I'm Fast's manager. And he goes, well, how old are you? <laughs> and I said, well, my, my father, Lou Chud, I knew Lou Chud, or I know Lou Chud, and uh, he gave him, he gave Fats his start. Now, remember, 1948, my father st started Fats. He was 19 years old, making 19 bucks a week, working in a bed spring factory and living in a house without indoor plumbing. His first royalty check for a song called The Fat Man was $50,000. He bought the house his mother lived in, the house his, his, that he lived in, knocked them both down and built his mansion actually in the Ninth Ward, which is a slum Absolutely. of New Orleans. The but one that was devastated, decimated by Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, and uh, to the point where he had a Rolls Royce, he had Lincolns, never got damaged. I don't know if that would be true today, but it was true in the 70s. Stay true to who he was. And because of the influence of Andy Chud, your dad, Lou, and the, the folks that you surrounded him with, I believe that. Well, I mean, we did some, some, some things like he used to palmate his hair. And I said, you need to bring yourself into the next century. We, we need to have you have a, a natural hairstyle. And he fought against it. And then from then until the day he died, that's what he used as his trademark. Absolutely. But but, but I did some things that were out of his comfort zone. He didn't like talking at all. And so I had him do talk shows. But we did some amazing shows. We did Carnegie Hall with Ike and Tina Turner. <laughs> and the tickets were six bucks. <laughs> and we, we did uh, a tour with a, a, a guy named Richard Nader is the guy that gave me the idea to go to Fats and say, I need to manage you. Because he had started these concerts that were literally a carbon copy of what Alan Freed used to do in the 50s. And Alan Creed would do these rock and roll cavalcades. And he'd have 10 bands. And they'd do three songs apiece. And they'd travel on buses and go from city to city. And so what Richard did was he put together a bunch of those. And then one day, uh, there was a guy named Chuck Freeze at uh, Metro Media. 
And uh, he and Jerry Eisenberg put together the idea for a movie called Let the Good Times Roll. And that was really magical for me because I got to be a part of that movie. Um, but there was Fats, there was Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Bill Haley and the Comets, the Coasters, the Drifters, the Platters, Chubby Checker. It was unbelievable. And we did a series of concerts. We did Madison Square Garden. We did Syria Mosque in Pittsburgh. We did Cobo Arena in Detroit. We did... Um, heck, oh, then we did some shows in Vegas. Wow. And uh, all of those became part where they put the movie together. But one of the producers of that movie um, ended up being um, one of the producers of Forrest Gump, this little movie, <laughs> Steve Tisch. Oh, He's Lawrence wow. Tisch's son. Oh, wow. so, so it was an amazing group. But, oh, and the one person I left out was Bo Diddley. Oh. And Bo Diddley's manager and I became really good friends, Marty Otelsberg, and we, we tried to get booked on the same shows. Um, Chuck Berry was an amazing character. Little Richard was larger than life. But I got to be around those people. That was like magic. Absolutely. And, so. and it's stuff that's up here, and it's on film. I mean, if you go into Let the Good Times Roll 19 minutes in, there I am, long hair, more of me. But uh, it was just unbelievable. And then it got... So, so take us back to when you met uh, Tom Parker, and he said, how old are you? And Oh, yeah, well... Finish that story uh, where... Where Elvis is behind him, and then what happened that evening? Well, I mean, basically what happened was I I was overwhelmed. He said, you're his manager. I said, yeah, my dad started Fats, and I came to him with an idea. And he loved the idea. He really did. And he was an idea guy. Whether good, bad, or indifferent, not a good guy, obviously. I had no idea. Tom Parker. Yeah, I had no idea that he kept 50%. I mean, I was happy with 10. So obviously he was a lot smarter than me. <laughs> but he, when he found out how old I was and that I was managing fats and I indeed had him under contract, he gave me a card that I carry to this day uh, as a part-time member of the Snowmen's League. And the first shot of Parker in his office has that exact logo. And I've been showing this for 20 years. Exactly. You and telling the story well. about Fats being brought on stage by Elvis for 20 years. And now it's come to fruition in, in the movie. So, so that's very, very cool. But you know what? I've, I have this feeling in my heart that I just music just soothes my soul. It's where I go when I'm not in a good place. It's, it's what I do. And, and it's an interesting connection that we have with Tom Parker as I was a high school senior in Salt Lake City, Utah, 1973. Do the math, I'm old too. <laughs> and I had a steady girlfriend of several years and I had promised her that we were going to see Elvis who was on his comeback tour and he was in the Salt Palace and a friend, I won't throw him under the bus by name, but what a dog. He said his dad had connections and that we could have tickets and blah, blah, blah. And I promised my girlfriend and I went to pick her up and we were all dolled up. We were fired up to see the king. And I went up to the avenues to pick up the tickets from my buddy. And his dad answered the door and said, I'm sorry, my son's been lying to you. I have no connections. I'm sorry, we don't have tickets. I go to the car. I tell my girlfriend, sorry, we don't have tickets to Elvis. What else do you want to do tonight? And it did not register. She just kind of said, well, let's go. We're going to be late. And I'm like, no, we don't have tickets. What do you want to do? She goes, let's go anyway. We parked the car. We went in. I went into the ticket counter. And nobody's around. And I asked the ticket lady. I said, excuse me, do you have any tickets that have been turned in? Any tickets that are still available? I, I, I've promised my girlfriend this is a special occasion. And she says, I'm sorry, we're completely sold out. And all of a sudden, I turn, and here's this larger-than-life man in a white suit, and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, I would call it a Cuban hat. What did you call it? A Panama. A Panama hat. And he says, hey, you want to see the king? And I said, yes, sir. And he gave us two tickets, and we went in. 
14th row, not on the floor, but just up a little bit. So we were eye level with Elvis Presley, and I was one of two men in that entire arena of fifteen to 20,000 women watching Elvis Presley put on the greatest show I've ever seen other than a Michael Jackson in his same, in his same <clears throat> category. And that memory of Elvis to this day inspires me that he gave it everything he had when less would be sufficient. He, he never took a second off. He was perspiring. He was such an entertainer, truly the king of show, not just the king of rock and roll. And I wanted to use that as a segue into your experience seeing him in concert that we saw live footage a little bit in the Elvis movie where he gave it. He sweat. He sweated. He perspired. Did you see that live? And did that inspire the other artists that saw him to, to step up their game? I got to see, I was very fortunate. I got to see Elvis probably 10 times live. The first time, though, was his third show that he did in Las Vegas at the International Hotel and my stepdad was a dentist named Frank Greenbaum, and he helped me get the tickets. And all my connections, nothing. No, no, no. But I went to see him, and we were, I had my elbow on the stage. And I had never seen him before, but I had loved his music since I was little. So um, he came out. Just like in the movie, walking on stage backwards, doing the karate stuff, you know, and and I was, I could have been a little girl because I was squealing, I guarantee you. <laughs> and that guy had me in the palm of his hand from the first song to the last song. And when he said thank you, and uh, you knew he meant it. Oh, yeah. You knew he was that, that, that two-hour experience was he was a part of you, you were a part of him. And it gave him strength. And at the end, he went down on his knee and yep. sweat was dripping off oh, of him. Yeah. And he was wearing those nudie yeah. polyester jumpsuits and he was fit. Absolutely. He was like fit. So let's and make this a segue. So, yeah. so in that situation, when you heard the announcer say Elvis has left the building, that brought tears to my eyes when I heard of his death in 1977, which was only four years after I saw him live. What a tragedy, dying in his 40s. But what a legacy he left. And one of the things that I really believe that, that ties me to him is an interview that he did with Ed Sullivan on the Ed Sullivan Show where they did not allow the cameras to film Elvis below the waist. That's where we were in the 1960s when I remember seeing him, the Beatles and the Beach Boys, all these folks just coming onto the scene in the Ed Sullivan show. And Ed Sullivan asked Elvis, this humble gentleman who respected authority and respected his elders, Elvis, why do you shake? Why do you have to, why do you, why, why do you have to wiggle so much? He goes, well, Mr. Sullivan, I, 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 the music makes me do it. I just don't know. It's just the music makes me do it. I can't, I can't hold still. That's the segue to you, my friend. <laughs> Why do you give so much of your time? Why do you give so much of your resources and your money? Why do you give so much of your love? And I really believe it's because the love makes you do it. I believe it's the service before self that makes you do it. That there's a reason why Elvis could not hold still and he brought it on every note and on every song. And every day you wake up, from what I understand, and as a dear, dear friend and as an observer of service before self, you basically wake up. What can I do today to make somebody better? What can I do today to lift up someone's heart and to, and to make our community brighter and full of light and love? So let's talk about your charity work and what you're most involved with um, in your, your service before self mentality. Well, I've got two pet projects and a couple of others because of the woman I've been with in excess of four decades. My wife Peggy has been inspirational to me in that when we first got together, I was already involved doing charity stuff and all this stuff. And she would help me. And then she developed her own, went off on her own, served on the National Board of the Adoption Exchange, did all sorts of Which stuff. Which was for dogs. No, no, no. The Adoption Exchange for Kids. Oh, my gosh. And then how did she get into it? And then, 
got a lot of dogs. I know. I know. So, sorry, sorry, so sorry. then Listen, she got that's she got with Intermountain. That's episode ther- two with Andy Shud. Then she got into Intermountain Therapy Animals oh, with yeah. the dogs, Thank and you. then she has Utah Friends of Basset Hounds because we have a bunch of dogs. So, but Andy has a bulldog named Hummer, not a bulldog, <laughs> a wiener dog named Limo. No, his name is and Timmy. A, and a white Maltese named Portia. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, we have we have a lot of dogs. But, you know, I, I've been a fortunate guy. Both my brother and I were raised as children of privilege. Uh, we traveled first class, stayed at the nicest hotels. Our parents, our grandparents lived back east, and we got to go visit them all the time. And my grandpa was the magic man. He managed a, ho- uh, a restaurant in Central Park called the Tavern on the Green. And my brother and I would talk him into doing stuff, and he did stuff that made me think to myself, one day I want to be a grandfather like him. He used to take, I mean, uh, 1964, I'm 14 years old. No, not even. And the Beatles movie, Hard Day's Night, comes out. And I said to my grandfather, I said, I want to go see Hard Day's Night. What's that? It's the Beatles. Okay. Go to the Paramount Theater on Broadway, 9.30 in the morning. Theater is three-quarters full. My brother, my grandfather, myself. My grandfather slept through the whole thing. But he took us. And he was always, what would you like to do next, son? That was the kind of upbringing that I had. He was a magic guy. My dad was a tough guy. But my grandfather was unbelievable. And so I had some pretty good role models my dad was very good with charity, very good with civil rights, very good with a lot of the things that, that I've carried with me all these years. Regardless of the disagreements that my dad and I had, there were certain things that he did that are heavily Im- embodied in both myself and my brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's just amazing. And then what happened was, you know, just like anything else, you find that sweet spot. With me, it was little kids. Um, I got involved with the Make-A-Wish Foundation of Utah before it was the Make-A-Wish Foundation of Utah. Uh, I, I did uh, some stuff with the Carl Malone Foundation for Kids. I helped with Thurl Bailey's basketball camp for 11 years, uh, the Brian Russell Foundation. I helped raise uh, money for, for the troops selling silicone wristbands and engaging, once again, my connections in music to help us spread the word and not go to them for money. So um, our, my latest two things, well, one's not the latest, but my latest deal is uh, a man named John Gossett who has another charity called Life's Worth Living Foundation. It's an anti-suicide charity, and he's one of my heroes. And John and, and Dan Snar, a sculptor, came to me about two years ago with a sculptor, a sculpture of Jerry Sloan. Jerry Sloan was a great man, one of the best storytellers I've ever met in my life, with a great sense of humor, very kind guy. And the NBA Utah Jazz head basketball coach who took us to the NBA finals twice. In 97 and 98. Absolutely. So, so basically... Against they, the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So at any rate, uh, they came to me. He, uh, John introduced us. John Absey, who is my partner in crime in a lot of charity. John was the Utah Jazz Bear for 25 years, and we've been friends. First appearance he ever made as the Jazz Bear was at my business. Which, so, incidentally, because he's been a guest on my on my podcast, you have to look up his episode. He proves true. It has nothing to do with the costume. It's all about the character and the human being who puts on the suit. It has nothing to do with the suit. And his, his method... His, Unbelievable charitable you. His message of kindness. Oh. Um, he would commit us to things. I'd go, John, we don't have... There's not enough hours in the day to do all of this. But we did everything from... John did... He had a D.A.R.E. program. He had a reading program. He had a don't do drugs. Uh, I mean, a... Uh, uh, a uh, just say no program. Uh, uh, anti-bullying program. Absolutely. He was the antithesis. 
and the most decorated mascot in professional sports history. And uh, so he's my partner in crime. We have an organization called Working for Charities. And uh, we uh, met with these two guys, saw this statue, and I've showed it to you, Dan. Yes. It's the likeness of Jerry. Even the gesture Absolutely. is just spot on. He's flipping off uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Bulls. I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> But, Wouldn't that have been cool? If there's not too much, if, if we had our let's way, it. if we had our way, it would be placed on the plaza, facing John and Carl statues as the coach. Yeah, the coach. And once again, I'm doing a an event on Sunday with John Absey uh, to salute two other great guys, Coach Frank Layden and Coach Ron McBride. And uh, uh, I'm so excited about that. I I can't tell you, uh, but. Getting involved in all of these things makes my heart sore. So I do this out of selfishness. I, I mean, it sounds good that I did this and I did that. All of that and three bucks will buy me the same cup of coffee that, it'll, well, maybe it's four bucks now. At Starbucks, it'll buy you. Um, I have boxes of community service awards that are in boxes because I don't have walls to put them. I didn't do it for them. I, I did it for me. And, and that's a, a, a total admission that I was totally selfish in this because I love the feeling I get when the magic happens. You and Kelly have shared uh, two events with us that I've been trying to get you to come to for years. Last year, you came to not one but both. And you're bought in, right? Absolutely. I mean, and, and I've done that with a number of my really, really high net worth friends that have gone, oh, my God, you've been doing this all this time. And I said, right, and I've been bugging you to come. And now they're in. So we have Mascot Bowl, which is, in short, we've been doing it. This is going to be our 20th year. We bring John, uh, God bless him, Absy brings in mascots from the NBA, the NFL, the uh, the NHL, every single mascot from every single college allowed in the Wasatch Front, uh, from St. George all the way up to Logan. And we put 34 mascots on the field, and they play a, ge a game against eighth, eighth graders. graders. Yeah. And they get blindsided, and they get beat up. But God bless them, they come here. And then we have people that pitch in. Rich Eggett and Johnny Ritchie come in and give $1,200 watches to all the guys that flew in. Um, you bring uh, black clover hats to all the guys. So they want to come back. They don't get paid. We pay their airfare and a couple nights hotel and pizza. It's not like it's they're staying at Grand America either. Um, but that, that being said, it creates such a great community event that allows us to do another amazing event. And that's our Christmas shop. Now, for years, we've been taking anywhere from 300 to 500 kids Christmas shopping. And the, and the COVID got us just like everybody else. So we didn't do it for a, for, uh, a year. And then this last year, um, in 2021, we decided we were going to do it, but the buses had to be disinfected and all this other stuff. So what we decided to do is rather than giving a kid $100, we picked... 25 needy families, and we brought in 25 of our sponsors, and we paired them up. And all of you guys were told you can't give them any extra money, but with Dan Clark and Mark Atkin and Aaron Grennan and, and Brady McIntyre and, and Ryan Bowen. Bowen and Michael McHenry, these guys come in and they break the rules. They go... So we gave them each $500. They get to do anything they want, but the whole family got to shop. The one thing that we told our shoppers is make sure the kids get their stuff first. That happened. And then what happens? Well, we're going to help them out to the car with their stuff, and then they're peeling off the hundreds to help because the they family. Had, they still had Christmas dinner. Okay. Just a second, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're, we're cruising around Walmart with these shopping carts, 500 bucks for the kids. And the kid, I said, do you like this toy? You know, pretty cool deal, blah, blah. He goes, I got to get something for my mom. 
They just kept looking outside of themselves and saying, I want this, I want this, I want this. They were always looking out for their siblings, always looking out for their parents, and that's what got us. Well, what gets you is, and, and, <clears throat> and the reason I've told all my friends of privilege to bring their kids oh, is yeah. because they see this. Because here they are in a situation where they've got virtually hardly anything. And they're being put in a situation where all they've got, all of a sudden they've got money, more money than they've seen. And what do they do? They want to share it. That is the thing that over and over, year after year, just amazes me because it never fails to happen. And it never fails to capture guys like you and get a tear in their eye. And even the tough guys. But I mean, you know. Oh, you're saying I'm a wuss? No. Even the tough guys cry. Yeah. I can't help it. There you go. Just be it, it's just, but it, But it is that. And, and the wives are affected. Oh. I mean, John and Janae Moss. John has a huge, huge company. Janae is totally involved in charities, and John funds them all. But they came to this event, because I begged them to, and they were like, we're in. We're in. Amazing people doing amazing things. And, and the great thing about that is guys like Ryan Bowen, Aaron Grennan, uh, Mark, and, Mark and Roma Atkin, all these people. And so I, I did that. And then I'm pretty heavily involved with this guy named Tim Ballard in this organization called Operation Underground Railroad. And, and as a matter of fact, texting in this morning, he's with Mel Gibson right now, but he was just honored by the president of Ecuador. Absolutely. We're talking about real-life heroes who was introduced to me by Sean Reyes, our attorney general, who's one of my dearest friends. So Tim but, Ballard's also been a guest on our, on our Power Players podcast um, As has Ryan Bowen. Exactly. You just need to do Aaron Grennan, and then exactly. you'll have the whole group. So let's, let's wind down. We could talk forever, Andy Chad. Let me try to summarize what I think you've been teaching the world, is that everybody has a story, but it's not your story to keep if it can help heal the world, if it can help serve our fellow men and women in our community. And as you've been kind of checking the boxes of all these influencers in our community here in Utah, I realized as I've been taking a, a personal inventory that I was introduced to them by you. So well, what are we willing to do? I'm telling you what, as we become the average of the five people we associate with the most, let's wind down our, 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 our interview here with Andy Chud, And please re-listen, re-watch so that you can take a note and write down one of these magnificent charitable organizations that Andy has founded or he supports wholeheartedly and surely you can find it in your heart to give to at least one of them and help Andy uh, manifest himself as one of God's most noble angels on <laughs> earth and I'm dead serious when I say that I think the best summary I could share is that what goes around comes around karma is a real deal I agree. and that when you're on top of the world we have a tendency to change our attitude and when we fall we know who our real friends are, and we just need someone to come into our life and help us up. And Andy, without getting too personal, you know, you're in full recovery, which I believe is the most inspirational part of you, where um, you don't, you know, you get knocked down seven times, you get up eight, you're just, that's the, the epitome of who you are. But the organization of friends and gracious souls, uh, I think was was brought to a head when we were in Walmart and at the end of the of the orientation when we were basically um, introduced to these 25 families and assigned to one family at a time to go up and down the aisles and give them this $500 Christmas. One of the gentlemen that was part of our team that had the privilege, the honor, the sacred opportunity to take a, a family, escort the family up and down the aisles he runs into a, a friend, and he's startled, and they get eye contact. He had been a business partner. He had made maybe the most money in their office working as financial advisors. And all of a sudden, the king at one time is now uh, at the lowest end of the totem pole, if you will, the economic ladder. And this gentleman, who is one of our dearest friends, was put in a position because of Andy and his love of humanity 
to reach out to someone that he once wasn't equal to, to obviously lift him back up and make sure he left that Walmart, reminding him and remembering that he was also and still remains an equal, that what goes around comes around, and that's what you're going to be known for when you take your last breath at age 162. Because <laughs> you can't die before I, that. We I need don't want to live to be 162. We need you too much. Well, so there I, you have it. Andy Chud, how do we... How do we tie into one of your charities? How could we? How could Two we, things. How could we tie in the Jerry Sloan deal? I want to get a million people to give a dollar. There you go, a million people to give one dollar, and where could they send it? Well, they can send it to, to working for charities. Okay, but but the bottom line is, um, we're going to be rolling out the the actual fundraiser with the help of a once again some amazing friends. And then for Mascot Bowl, it's Firemen and Friends for Kids. That's 501c3. Uh, that's the one that takes kids Christmas shopping. So we raise money for Mascot Bowl first. But wouldn't it be magical if we could get 100,000 people each to give a buck? 10 bucks, 20 bucks. Yeah, but a buck. Because then you've got the funding for the Christmas shops. You've got the funding for the actual Mascot Bowl. You can put money aside wow, there's a magical concept with the charity, have money to set aside for next year, um, because we're always looking for ways to help. And, um, you know, I, it's just like I said, you know, you surround yourself with good people, and goodness gracious, trust me, I've surrounded myself with enough of the bad ones to starting to know what the good ones are. And, I, you know, you, you talk about Sean Reyes, you, Doug Pizzetta, Ryan Bowen, Aaron Grennan, Mark and Roma Atkin, Tim Ballard. I'm a fortunate, fortunate guy. And most of all, I'm fortunate because I have Maggie. Absolutely. And oh, and my brother Reed. And my sister-in-law Mary. And seven dogs. As a reminder, a 72-year-old man who grew up in the 60s, the most commonly used word throughout the entire 60s happens to be... Here. <laughs> Have a great day. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.